All right, well, some time ago, uh, I don't know, I really don't know how I came to just keep reading the parable of the, uh, the ten virgins. And if you read my article, you know, there's, a, there's all kind of ways that uh, you can teach on that. You could probably teach, I don't know, you could teach a lot. And I just really kept feeling like, you know, that's a message that the church needs to hear. And so uh, when Dwight and Caleb and I were talking, it's like, well, what are you going to do? And um, originally I was going to do something on Proverbs, and I was getting ready to go down that road, and then schedules changed, and we got changed, and so... I went back to the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And so, in a minute, uh, Judy, we're going to put that up, and we're gonna, I want you to follow along with me. We're reading in the King James Version, New King James Version, all right? And I'm going to start with, uh, it's called the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, he said, then the kingdom, now this is Jesus talking. We've got to remember, this is Jesus speaking to us. Then the kingdom of God, of heaven, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels, and they also and they had oil in their vessels, and they also had some more oil in a little vase or something. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And about midnight, a cry was heard: "Behold, the bridegroom is coming! Go out to meet him!" And then all the virgins rose, and they trimmed their lamps. And uh-oh, the foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy it for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterwards, the virgins came, other virgins came also, and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now, they had his name right. They had his title right. They were just too late. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And in verse 13, and this is the reason for the whole, this whole parable. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That's the lesson of today. That's the lesson of today. Because we don't know now, in a group this size, we might have some folks here, folks that are streaming that, 
I don't know, you know, Jesus has been talking about coming back a whole long time, but it seems like everything's just the same as it's always been. And sometimes it does feel like that. But Peter also talks about, you know, when you hear this kind of stuff, you need to think that Jesus said in the last days there's going to be scoffers who said that very same thing. I've been waiting for Jesus a long time. He ain't come yet, probably ain't going to come. But you need to understand that this, this parable, this story was one that everybody in that time period, in that culture, they would have totally understood because every Hebrew wedding was like that. And I'm going to just give you some really quick facts. And, and I could go, I could do an hour on this. So the wedding parable was understood in the culture of the time because this is the way weddings went uh, and they're basic pack. Facts, but every Jewish wedding was prearranged. Prearranged. Even today, if you can imagine that. The father of the groom would normally select the future bride for his son. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, ladies, can you imagine that? Some dude walking up to you and say, Hey, I have a son for you. And the father of the groom and the father of the bride, then what they would do is they would get together and they would discuss the price of a dowry. The kids are not in this conversation. The kids, they have no choice in the decision, sort of. It's made between the two dads, and it's made between two dads that love their kids. So we got to keep that in mind. So it's not a purchase price, but it's an endowment to take care of the bride if something happens to the groom because the next part of this story is that there's a year waiting period. But let me get, don't get ahead of my notes. And so, but if something would happen to the groom during this year that they're going to wait to actually consummate their marriage, then she would be taken care of or... If something happened and the groom had some reason to divorce his wife. Because even though they have this betrothal, it's, the, it's a legal and binding marriage. So, But once it's settled, then the two fathers would create a written contract. And it would be read at the gate of the city. And everybody and anybody who was around could listen. And, you know, the kids would be there. And it's like... Here's the contract for these kids to get married. And so another part of the ceremony, but it would be publicly witnessed so that everybody would know that these two kids were betrothed. And so if they saw something hinky going on in either one of them, they knew that these two were already married. And so anyway. And then uh, part of the ceremony would be the groom would come and he'd bring a ring and he'd bring a communion cup. And he'd offer the girl the ring, and he'd offer her the communion cup to take a drink. Now, because the girl had, the woman had, she did not have to accept this betrothal just because her dad said, I think it's a good idea. But she still had the final say. And so the way that would work is if she wished she could refuse to receive the cup of communion. 
and presumably she could refuse the ring too. I would hope she'd be that honorable. But if she took the cup and she sipped the communion cup, then the betrothal was complete. And they were in a legally binding marriage. And I want you to remember, if you think back to the, uh, in the upper room when they had the last communion together of, at uh, Passover, Jesus said, the, you know, I'm not going to drink of this cup until I drink it again in my father's house. And this is exactly what the groom would tell his bride, you know, here's the cup, you can drink it, but I'm not going to drink it until we're together in my father's house. And then the groom would go off, and he would prepare a place for he and his wife attached to mom and dad's house. That has its own set of things for me, anyway. Even though my in-laws were great, I wouldn't want to live with them. <laughs> so, uh, okay. And so, basically, for one year, this, this groom married, had no contact with his bride, and he was preparing his house, he was preparing his place for his bride. And this was a year-long process. A year. And at the same time, the bride, she's getting her dresses and all the stuff that she needs to do and her finery and whatever it looked like. She's doing the same thing. No contact with this guy that who knows how long, how, how many, if, that, if they met when they did the betrothal thing at the gate. That could have been. I don't know. But the other part of the waiting thing, and this is interesting, the other part of the waiting thing was to make sure that she wasn't pregnant. And so I, I found that interesting. So it's a preparing time. It's a... You know, time to make sure she's not already with child. And so during this year, everybody's getting ready. But I want you to think about Mary and Joseph, because Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And they'd done this thing. And so, you know, she's at her one-year waiting thing, and Joseph is in his one-year waiting thing. And what happens? The angel appears to Mary and says, Hey, favored one. You're going to be a mom. You're going to carry my son during that year. And so towards the end of that period, there is no way Mary's not going to have a baby bump of some size. It's just not going to be. It's, and so Joseph, you know, he probably got word, hey, Mary went to see her cousin. She's back. She's pregnant. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because Joseph knows his part of this ceremony is to go get the bride at the end of the year. And so when the year was ending, the father of the groom would determine when he felt the house was ready, everything was ready, so his son could go get the shofar. And he would do that, and then he would go and create basically a parade through the city. And so traditionally, the groom wouldn't even know when his dad was going to say the house is done. 
And he was just waiting and waiting and waiting, and so was the bride. And Joseph was waiting too, and probably somebody had said, hey, you know Mary's pregnant. What are you going to do? The father would then hand his son, now we're not talking about, we're talking about in this parable. He'd give his son the shofar, the groom would walk through the town with the shofar, blowing it in the night, because he's going to wake up everybody in the city and let them know, I'm going to get my bride. I'm going to get my bride. And you know, when you read in Matthew, it says, Joseph was minded to put away Mary privately because he loved her and he didn't know what else to do but the angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said hey you don't have to fear taking Mary for your wife because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and then Joseph could go walk through the town blowing his shofar and he could claim his bride with the baby bump and so this story was, was not a, a weird story to the people of the culture. It just wasn't. And the, so the brides and the bridegroom, or the groom, bridesmaids, that's what they are, you know, they were waiting, and when, when the groom showed up, it was always in the middle of the night. They would need their lamps, and that's why the lamps play such an important part of the story, because it's in the middle of the night. Right. And they, don't, they didn't know the day, they didn't know the hour, because it was all dependent upon when the father of the groom said, it's time to go. Can you see the analogy to the father in heaven? Because it says Jesus doesn't even know the day nor the hour. He doesn't know. The bride doesn't know. Do you know, Todd? Do you? We don't know. But what's the word say? It says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so it's up to us. This is our time to get ready and be ready. And so even though uh, the virgins or the maidens, depending on the, verse of the, or the book of the Bible, version of the Bible, are front and center of the story, there are three things, themes, that we look at today. One of them is expectancy, because there's an expectancy that we need to be aware of. There's an expectancy that these bridesmaids were aware of, and the groom was aware of, of something happening in a future day. There's an urgency that they needed to be aware of, because they didn't know the day nor the hour. They only knew that when it happened, they needed to be ready. So we have expectancy, and we have urgency, and we have readiness. And those are the things that we need to pay attention to in our walk. But there's a missing ingredient that I haven't spoken of. And what was the missing ingredient to readiness? Does anybody know? Oil, yeah. Some had oil and some didn't. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But first I want to talk about the virgins in the story. How they prepare is directly affected by their expectancy, their urgency, and what they believe. Our preparation for God Christ's coming is dependent upon our urgency, our expectation, and what we believe. And so we need to pay attention to these things.
So I, here's the question. Did these 10 virgins believe that the bridegroom was going to come someday? Yes, they did. And they believed it because when the invitation came, they got ready. So did they all go somewhere when the invitation came to wait? Yes, they did. Because they're, you know, the expectations were there. But the groom didn't come as expected, and that was where the problem came in with the amount of oil that they had. Because if they thought he was going to come in five minutes and they had about three minutes of oil or ten minutes of oil, they'd be okay. But because the groom delayed, they did not have the readiness that they knew they should have. Why were they all virgins? When you think of the word virgin, what do you think? Set aside, pure, holy. And so these ten girls, women, whatever, they were virgins, set aside, pure and holy. But five were ready and five were not. Did they all bring lamps? Yes. Did they all bring oil? No, the answer is no. So they weren't ready. They weren't ready. And you need to focus on the fact that they knew to be ready and they weren't ready. And we'll talk about that because I, had, I went through my own little gyration in my mind. Ten virgins believed they were ready, but some were wrong. And so I, I'm thinking, man, you know, why five wise and why five foolish? Why not seven and three? Why weren't seven of them wise and three foolish? Why wasn't it six and four, eight and two, nine and one? You pick your number. Why wasn't it that? Because, you know, my Western entitlement mind says they, they were all sort of ready. They were all set aside. They were all virgins. They all knew that they were waiting with expectancy. So why are we going to be so hard on them because they weren't ready? Good question, isn't it? But see, that's a Western mindset question. They knew, because of the culture of the time, they knew what a wedding was supposed to look like, and they knew they needed to be ready. But yet my mercy motive was trying to think, God, you know, isn't, isn't there a way? Isn't there a way? But then, you know, I was pondering, and it said... I remember what Jesus said. He said, you know, I only speak what I hear my father say. Ouch. Ouch. Because it says something about how God views this thing and us and our readiness, doesn't it? It does. 50% of the population in this thing, they were not ready. They knew to be ready and they were not ready. And so that in itself is a lesson in the parable that we need to pay attention to. And so why were the foolish virgins not ready? Well, they were aware of the expectancy because they were sort of ready. 
And they liked, maybe they liked being around saved people. Maybe they liked the idea of a wedding party. I don't know. Only they really knew why they were there. And only they knew how ready they were. But they didn't really understand the urgency of the hour or they would have prepared and been ready. They made assumptions that their readiness was good enough. Their readiness was good enough. That was a dangerous assumption. Maybe their commitment was to Christianity was just shallow. Do we know people like that? Yeah, we do. There could be somebody here. I don't know. Could be people watching online that they're committed, but it's just shallow. And only, you know, individually we can answer the question of why we are where we are when we're there. Maybe they were committed to the idea of Christianity, but they were not committed to the idea of being a follower of Christ. Because there's a difference. There's a difference. When we follow Jesus, and you need to look up how many times Jesus said, follow me. He said it a whole bunch of times. Because the implication of believing in Jesus, now John 3, 16, everybody can quote that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That sounds like a life insurance policy. Fire insurance policy, doesn't it? But there are many, 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 many scriptures where Jesus said, follow me, follow me. Maybe, you know, they just didn't have enough depth in their Christianity. Maybe they were really, you know, thought they were heading in the right direction. But, you know, Jesus talks about four soils in Luke 17, he said, one was so hard that the seed hit it to be like throwing it on this carpet. Bird's going to come and get it and it's going to be gone. It's not going to get him planted. One was so rocky that there just wasn't enough dirt to help it grow. You know, one fell into a weed patch and the weeds choked it. And one, it said, went into good ground, and it was able to grow. And so maybe, maybe that was the case with these five women. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I just know that they knew what it took to be ready, and they weren't ready. Maybe Hebrews 4.2 is accurate. It says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so there's an aspect that we need to understand that just because we hear the word, it's got to be mixed with faith or it's not going to do us much, if any, good. So we've got to pay attention. We've got to figure out how this faith thing is going to work in me, that uh, my faith is going to grow that my faith is not going to, you know, I'm going to do what I can. If I know I'm a guy on a rocky heart, I better do something about it. 
If I know my heart is cold as stone, I better do something about it. I better try to change my environment so I can change how my faith is going to grow. And then <clears throat> Proverbs 19.3, if you're following along in your Proverbs, reading a proverb a day, I read this on the 19th just a couple days ago. And I thought, ah, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Maybe they were just foolish. Now, I don't, that doesn't, I don't want that to sound cavalier, but the word says some people ruin their lives. I don't know what version this is, but I like it. Some people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they get angry with God. Do you know people like that? I do. I have heard more time than I care to hear, where was God when? And they get angry. They get angry. But they ruin their lives because of their own foolish decisions and choices. And it's almost like they want him, God to be this genie in a bottle. I can clap my hand or I can rub the side of the bottle or take the lid off and the genie God will come out and take care of my situation. But I don't want him out of that bottle messing with my life any other time. Dangerous place. But you know what? All of us have been in that same circumstance to one degree or another where our faith wasn't what we needed to be and we find ourselves in a mess. Maybe we find ourselves in a mess because we made foolish choices. And we'd like to be able to run to the genie God. But if we've been around the word of God and we've been around, you know, Christian people who help and mentor us, then we just know that, you know, God's not a genie at our beck and call. We've got to develop the relationship. And so, unless we grow, unless we mature, unless we understand what readiness is going to look like for me and for you, we are not going to pay attention to urgency. We're not. And so that's, that's something that we've got to work on day in and day out, year in and year out, because we are expected to grow as God's children. We're not expected to be the same as we were when we received Christ. We're not expected. We are expected to grow. We're expected to know the word. And that's why I was so captivated when the, when the kingdom of heaven shall be likened. You can go through the New Testament in the Gospels and you can find... Where Jesus says this, the kingdom of God is like. And those are good lessons to pay attention to because they're going to teach us something. In this case, it's teaching us urgency and readiness, expectancy. But there's a lot of things that Jesus said that he expects. He expects us to be the light of the world. He expects us to be a candle on a hill not a candle on a lampstand and you put a bushel basket over so nobody can see. He expects that. There's another parable, the kingdom of God is like, the king's going to go away for some time. No, he's not telling you how long. And he's going to give talents to people. He's not telling you when he's coming back, but he is going to come back. I'm coming back, so I want you to do something with what I give you. 
And that parable follows the parable of the foolish virgins. Because he gave out three sets of talents. One guy got five, one guy got three, one guy got one. And the guy that got one, he said, I was afraid of you, and I did nothing with it. But I didn't steal it. Here it is back. You know, and the Bible says, the master said, go to that guy that had the one, because he don't have it anymore, and give it to the guy that's got ten. And furthermore, take that guy and throw him into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you know, my, well, wasn't he, you know, he was serving the master. Yeah, but when you do the study, he was just a false follower. He didn't understand the urgency of the moment. He didn't understand preparation. And that's why Jesus could say, or the master could say to him, you could have at least given it to one of the other guys and let them invest it. Because I only gave you one because I, that's what I thought you could manage, but you couldn't even manage that. And he couldn't manage that because he didn't know the master. He didn't have a relationship with the master. And so when the Bible says he was cast into outer darkness, that's what it means. That's what it means. That's what it means. So, serious questions for a serious, serious subject. What do you believe in? What do you believe? Because it's a question. Are they up there? Good. Yeah, so what do you believe regarding Jesus, sin, salvation, and the end of the world? What do you believe? Because the answer to that question is going to tell you what you need to know about yourself. It tells me what I need to know about myself. This whole sermon has told me a lot of things that I didn't like. Trust me. Trust me. Here's another question. What books or teachers shape what you believe? What books or teachers shape what you believe? Why do I ask that question? Because culture is wanting to shape our, shape us. It wants to shape our thinking. Culture wants to dilute us. Culture wants then to dilute us. Culture wants to defeat us. And then, con you know, in the cancel culture, it wants to cancel our passion. It wants to cancel our voice and cancel our influence. So you've got to pay attention to the things that teach you outside of the Word of God. You just got to. I've got to. I'm reading two books right now, and they're both challenging. One's not a fan. It's called Not a Fan. I thought, what the heck's that book about? And basically, it's talking about the, this guy, the pastor that wrote it. He's, you know, he was, had a pretty good-sized church. I think he said 1,000 people. But he felt like they were empty. And he was getting ready to do an Easter sermon. And he said, you know, God, what? And, you know, I got all these people. They come, but they're so empty. And you know what the Lord told him? He said, because you're not teaching them to be a follower. 
You're teaching them to be a fan. There's a difference, follower and fan. You know, if you follow, I don't know, I know that there's Jason around, oh, he's teaching. But, you know, Jason, you know, he follows, he's the Michigan guy and he's the Browns guy, right? And he follows them regardless. See, he's a follower. He's not a fair weather fan that says, ah, heck with those guys. They haven't won in decades. No, Jason's a follower. And see, Jesus wants us to be followers. The other book I'm reading, also challenging, is called Intoxicated by Babylon. And basically, it's talking about how Babylon, the Babylon where the Tower of Babel were, when the people, they, they were smart people, and there was a whole bunch of them, and they all spoke the same language, and they, you know what? They said, you know what? We don't need God. We're going to build this thing to the heavens, and we'll be like God. They built a city there called Babylon. And that culture of Babylon is prevalent. It's active. And it's out of the pit of hell. From the very foundation of Babylon, it came right out of hell where Satan said, you know what? Lucifer said, you know what? I can be like God. And from that day till this day, that seed of rebellion is planted in us. It's part of our heritage, inheritance from Adam and Eve. It's part of our kids' inheritance from Adam and Eve. It's part of our grandkids' inheritance from Adam and Eve. I got grandkids. I see it. And so, intoxicated with Babylon, it's like uh, it, it's in the church, it's in our communities, it's in our schools, because our schools want to take your kids down. They do. If you have kids in Columbus Public Schools, they have this sex education program, unless it's been canceled. I think it's by Sintero, I think, something like that. And it is pornography. It's pornography. It's what it is. I like the name Sin, tarot, sin. I don't know if they got that when they created it. But it's in our schools and it wants to kill your kids and it wants to destroy their lives. Culture. Culture. Okay, another question. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Well, I've got a Bible in my house. Do you believe it? Does the Bible in your house affect how you make choices? Does it? Some days, I do better than others. Sometimes I go, you know, more than a day. But the culture wants to influence us, and our Bible has to be the primary influence in our lives, or we'll not be ready. We'll not sense the urgency of things going around us. We just won't. Can you defend what you think you believe? Did I say that one? Do you believe that the Bible's the Word of God? Maybe I did. But can you defend it, or can you just read it? 
Do you know enough about what it says that you can defend it if you need to defend it, if your life depended upon it? Because there's going to come a day, folks, where our life is going to depend on what amount of words we have inside of us. I just finished a book in January. It's called ooh, Live Not By Lies. And it's the story of, it's a bunch of stories that this guy, he went into communist, former communist countries. And he interviewed people who survived, Christian people who survived death camps, just prison camps in general, Siberia. Some didn't know why they were there because they didn't do anything wrong, except they were Christians. And the one thing that kept them sane and kept them alive and kept them hopeful was the amount of word that they had in their hearts because they didn't have a Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There's another scripture that I meditate on the word day and night. There's another verse that says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. See, those are the things that we need to pay attention to because all those things are part of our readiness. They're part of our readiness. Here's another question. Do you have an internal God-centered compass to guide and direct you? What is your compass? Who put it there? Questions? about this one? Well, I'll just read it. Does the belief structure you hold or live by fit within the confines of this book? Because it doesn't matter what you believe or what you think you believe. If it doesn't match up with the word of God, then you have got a compass that's going to misdirect you every time. Every time. You know, I've got, a, I've got a compass in my truck. And every once in a while, it, I just notice I'm going north, but it doesn't say I'm going north. I go east, it, I'm not going east. And so there's a, there's a thing I can push, and I've got to find this big parking lot, and I've got to push this button, and I've just got to drive in a circle, drive in a circle, so the compass can reset itself. Does your compass need to be reset because you haven't been in the Word frequently or at all or enough regularly? Because this Word will be our compass. This Word will give us urgency. This Word will teach us expectation. And this Word will teach us readiness. Here's another question. This goes by belief, in that same vein as the uh, belief structure. Would you agree that every one of us make decisions every day? Some kind of decision. And I'm not talking about, am I going to have pizza or ice cream? Because, see, I could choose those two. I could do that. I would likely not choose 
a sandwich or salad. I probably wouldn't do that. But I'm talking about decisions that impact how we live, how we move, and how we have our being. So, so are we in agreement that we all make decisions, important decisions? Okay. So, according to your belief structure, if every decision you make today, is that up there? Yeah. If every decision you made today, for example, were going to be graded by Jesus, and every decision would be pass or fail. Pass or fail. God does not grade on a curve. It's pass or fail. The five foolish virgins, their test, their decision was not a maybe. It wasn't a C. Their decision was F, fail. And Jesus said, I don't know you. I don't know you. Today we've got an opportunity because this is an opportunity to examine our belief structures, the things that we decide, help us decide things with. We can think about expectancy of the return of Christ. We can think about urgency and we can think about what Factors might be lying ahead of us for the future of our life, for the future of our nation that we don't know about. We don't know. There's not one thing that has to happen for Jesus to come back. There's just not. He can come back today. So if he can come back today, then are we ready? Are we ready? So going back to the virgins for just a minute, the five foolish virgins were just that. They thought they had time to run out and buy oil, but they didn't. So what made the five virgins wise? They were filled with oil. And the oil is representation of the Holy Spirit. It's always been representation of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, when kings and priests were anointed, they were anointed with oil. It was symbolic, yes. It was used to set them aside, yes. It was a, used to signify the Holy Spirit come up, coming upon them so that they could do their job as a king or a priest. It's the same with us. Leviticus 8.30 said, Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood from the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. And so he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. They were set aside for the purposes of God. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will rest upon this Jesus. When we have the Holy Spirit in us and on us, it's two different things. It's two different transactions. But when we have the Holy Spirit in us and on us, we have access to the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength and knowledge and fear of the Lord. Matthew 6, 3.16 said, And soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Suddenly the heavens were open, 
and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And Jesus said this in John 14, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That is a promise from the mouth of Jesus to us. From the mouth of Jesus to us. And that's a promise. We have the promise. Acts uh, 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Spirit of the Holy Spirit falls upon you. It is a promise. It is a guarantee. But it doesn't happen unless we pursue it. So here's a list of the things that the Holy Spirit can do if we want it. It can teach us all things. Are you, do you need wisdom? He can teach you. It can bear witness. Now, this is an important one. The Holy Spirit will bear witness that you are a child of God. Do you ever have doubt about your status with God? People struggle with that. The Holy Spirit will bear witness that you're a child of God. You need to pay attention. The Holy Spirit will go before us into circumstances we don't know yet. The Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit will reveal the Father to us. The Holy Spirit will reveal Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit will reveal truth to us. This book is full of truth, and if you look at it and read it and pursue it, then the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to you. This, the Holy Spirit will reveal sin in us. Yeah, we don't like to think about, I, I don't sin. Yeah, I do. Yeah, you do. And if we pay attention, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to us. He will. That's his job. And it's not a job because he wants to be a hard taskmaster. It's a job because he wants us to grow in godliness. He wants us to grow in preparedness. He wants us to grow in urgency and expectation. That's what he wants. Revelation 19, it says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, it's not come for us yet. It's a future thing. And his wife, his bride, has made herself ready. That's what our time on earth is all about, getting ready. And to her, the bride, to us, it was granted, it was granted to be arrayed in fine white linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is made of the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, the Bible calls us saints if we're children of God. And in that verse, it's talking about the righteous deeds of the saints. There's no way we can continue to be in secret service Christians, come to church. That's, it's just not supposed to be in our DNA. But in our culture, we're way too comfortable with that and 
but there's going to come a time when the world is going to demand, put a pull on us, and we better be prepared to give them what they need in their hour of need. And we're never going to do it unless we're filled with the Spirit, unless we're filled with the Word. We can't give them what they need. So this is our time of preparation. Jesus knows our name. Because he said, he says his word, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. You know, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. He didn't say, for God so loved Christians, for God so loved almost Christians. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was God's plan. So he knows our name. And he knows where we are. And he knows those who are going to be foolish without urgency and without preparation. He already knows that. So, where are we today? Well, I've been reading things like people writing into newspapers, is this pandemic that we're in, is it a sign of the end times? Could be. At the very early months of the pandemic, there were world leaders that were saying, we need one world order. We need one leader to lead us out of this pandemic. Okay. Do you realize how fast some people made some rules and how fast the world got in line? And I'm not dog and mask. This is not a mask issue. But the world got in line and did what the government said. Because they had, you know, this pandemic, it's a very real virus. It is. Some people die. It's real. But they've also used the fear of, of dying to make us get in line. Make us get in line. World leaders have said we need one government. And there's something else going on. I don't know if you've heard much about it. I have not much read about it. But our world leaders are talking about something called the Great Reset of All Worlds Concurrency. The Great Reset. And what they're going to do is, if they, it's, it's called the World Economic Forum, I think. You can look it up. I'm not lying. But what they want to do is they want to equalize all of us. doesn't matter whether you live in the U.S. It doesn't matter whether you live where. Ethiopia. It doesn't matter where you live. One of the sayings they have, you're not going to have anything and you're going to be happy. That's what they want to bring on this world. So, you know, we need to pay attention. Maybe the end, beginning of end days are nearer than we think. I don't know, folks. But today is a day to decide. It's a day to decide. Am I going to ramp up my readiness? Am I going to ramp up my urgency? Am I going to ramp up my expectation? What expectation? Am I going to ramp up the expectation of what God can do in and through me if I am wholly concentrated, consecrated to him? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that question? If I give my 100% devotion to Christ, what's that going to mean? What's that going to mean? I want to see if I can find this here. It's an article. 
Um, you know, we're talking, we talked about oil, and this is an article, it's about the oil of the Spirit. It is by this lady named Martha Kilpatrick. I want to give her attribution. But I thought about, as I read it, it says, oil must be bought. Yes, it must be bought. The Holy Spirit is purchased. Yes. The anointing of fullness comes at a price. The price is repentance, and you pay with your pride. The cost is your independence, and you pay with your freedom. But the word says, for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So when I give my allegiance to Christ, it's not supposed to be burdensome. It's just supposed to set me free. It's just supposed to set you free. We have great and enormous promises that are ours. They're ready for the taking. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us and lead us into truth. We have the Holy Spirit to teach us. It's ours for the asking today. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. And, you know, as I pray, pray your own prayer. Pray your own prayer. Father, I thank you for this message. It wasn't all that easy to prepare, Father, but I thank you for leading and guiding and directing and giving me insights and thoughts. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the counsel of your word. And I thank you that you give us the promise of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for everyone here and everyone in uh, their homes or wherever they're watching on, on their phones or wherever they are. Father, I pray that the anointing that comes from you would flow out to each one here, each one present. Father, you know our individual needs. You know our hurts. You know those things that hold us back. You know everything about us. And so, Father, I pray that you will... Give us what we need. Send us what we need. Give us the wisdom that we need. Give us the anointing that we need. Father, give us the passion that we need to pursue you, to seek your face and not your hand. And Father, I pray that your benediction will rest upon us, that your benediction will rest upon everybody watching in this moment and in the moments out there in the future. Father, let your presence be tangible and real in our lives today. And as we go forth, we pray that you'll never leave us because your word says you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, this day I give you permission to send your Holy Spirit to everyone within the sound of my voice regardless of where they hear. And Father, I give you permission to be the hound of heaven to pursue them, to draw them, to bring them to a more clear understanding of wherever they are in the moment. Because I want our people to be ready. I want our people to be prepared. I want our people to have the sense of urgency and expectation of what you can do in and through us when your Holy Spirit has reigned. And Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.